This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Climate change is unquestionably one of the largest existential threats of our lifetime. I don't think I need to tell you all just how dire the situation is. We're bombarded by newspaper articles like these just about every day. From Australian wildfires, to massive population displacements, to rising sea levels threatening our cities worldwide. Apocalypse really is the new normal. According to The Lancet, climate change is, or at least was pre-COVID, the largest public health threat of the 21st century. Last year, there were 220 million additional heat wave exposures among the elderly compared to previous years. We know that climate change contributes to undernutrition among the over 800 million people affected, and this number is in fact expected to double by mid-century. There were 7 million climate refugees in the first half of 2019 alone. Climate change is leading to the spread of new infections and also contributes to pulmonary and cardiovascular disease. In fact, the World Bank tells us that at minimum, we're gonna see 5 million excess deaths between the years 2030 and 2050. And the impact of climate change on disease transmission is especially relevant to consider in light of the COVID pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic is also one of the most dangerous global health threats we've ever faced with severe health and socioeconomic consequences. So as of May 7th, there were 3.85 million cases and over 269,000 deaths. The U.S., which has nearly a third of all cases worldwide, has 1.25 million cases, and the total number of deaths exceeds 75,000. Then this leads to the obvious question, how, if at all, are these two unprecedented global health challenges of our time linked? Is the emergence of the new virus related in some way to changes in our climate? So I think there are really four ways to think about this intersection between climate change and the coronavirus pandemic. First, did climate change play a role in the emergence of or the spread of SARS-CoV-2? How does climate change play a role in the development of severe COVID-19 illness once infected? What has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on climate change and on the climate response? And what are some of the lessons that we can learn towards climate change action that we've learned from our pandemic response. So starting with the first question, namely whether climate change related in some way with the emergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, I just wanna briefly provide some background on zoonotic diseases. So an estimated 75% of emerging infectious diseases are zoonotic, meaning that the pathogen jumped from animals to cause illness in humans. And the primary mode of transmission uh, for zoonotic infections or the, you know, the primary way that pathogens spread include from direct contact with animal bodily fluids, such as from urine, feces, or blood, indirect contact where animals live and roam, for instance, from barns or chicken coops, vector-borne from ticks or insects like mosquitoes, and food-borne or water-borne. So for instance, when uh, animal feces may contaminate the food or water supply. So some notable examples of zoonotic diseases are West Nile virus, 
um, which emerge from birds, Ebola virus and SARS, which where bats are thought to be implicated, rabies from dogs, raccoons and bats, plague and hantavirus from rodents like mice, and HIV actually originally originated from chimpanzees, and influenza originally from wild waterfowl, but these no longer require an animal vector for transmission. So SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus that emerged from Wuhan City, China in late 2019, is also believed to be zoonotic, though the exact animal reservoir has yet to be definitively identified. We do suspect that Chinese horseshoe bats may be the culprit, given genetic similarities with other bat-borne coronaviruses. We also don't know the precise SARS-CoV-2 spillover event, but may have occurred actually through an intermediate animal species. So given how little we know, it's really hard to say whether climate change itself is implicated in the emergence of the virus. Despite these unknowns, I think a key point is that zoonotic disease outbreaks aren't simply things that just happen to us. These are things that we caused by our disruption of ecosystems. And many of the ways that we're disrupting the planet are both causes and responses to climate change. So climate change and anthropogenic change can affect the distribution of zoonotic infections through several pathways. And climate change and anthropogenic change can also affect each other as well. So we see more viral spillover from animals due to increases in two broad factors. First, human-animal interactions and favorable conditions for disease transmission in animal populations. So climate factors like temperature and precipitation patterns and human actions like deforestation and urbanization can really alter the geographic range of animal vectors by making it more likely that human, uh, humans and wild animals come into contact with one another or that wild animals come into contact with human livestock. These same climactic factors can also affect the population density of animal vectors, resulting in dramatic increases or decreases in host reservoirs of disease. The rates of infection among animal vectors can also be increased by environmental changes, and particularly those that cause stress in animals. The pathogen load in animal vectors can also be affected directly by temperature and also by stress in animals, including heat stress. Agricultural intensification, so large increases in population of livestock, can contribute to viral mutation and interspecies transmission. And finally, population density, globalization, and migration create new opportunities for pathogen spread. Anthropogenic changes that altered animal habitats and brought humans and wild animals closer together were more likely actually the direct or approximate cause of the emergence of SARS-CoV-2 rather than climate change itself. And some contributing factors included increased human population density, urbanization, and exploitation of wildlife through hunting and trade. Also globalization, and particularly the ease and frequency of cross-border travel, certainly helped turn COVID-19 from a localized epidemic into a global pandemic. And I think that the most important connection here is that both the pandemic and climate change underscore that planetary health and human well-being are inextricably linked. So while we're unsure whether climate change is responsible for the emergence of SARS-CoV-2, 
we know that it can certainly amplify the harm caused by the novel virus. So, and this happens in really five distinct ways. Air pollution, which in itself is exacerbated by climate change, we know drives pulmonary disease and other comorbidities that may put people at higher risk once exposed. Climate change can also contribute to immune suppression, which can also enhance vulnerability to serious illness when exposed. Climate change disproportionately affects vulnerable and minority populations, and these are also those that are at risk for the worse COVID-19 outcomes. Importantly, climate change gives rise to living conditions that make it really difficult for people to protect themselves from acquiring COVID-19. And finally, climate change can further strain already overburdened healthcare systems. So turning to air pollution, we know that exposure to air pollution has been shown to result in acute airway inflammation and decreases in lung function. And studies also show a strong link between air pollution and acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is one of the ways that COVID-19 can be lethal for uh, patients. There's also data linking higher air pollution levels to cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. Fossil fuel pollutants are also known to suppress the immune system and they enhance allergic reactions and asthma. Then we know in turn that people who have underlying heart and lung disease are at increased risk of severe illness from COVID-19. Interestingly, during the previous SARS outbreak, people living in the higher pollution areas in China literally had twice the rate of death compared to those living in lower pollution areas. So there have been preliminary studies linking higher rates of COVID-19 morbidity and mortality to air pollution exposure. A recent study from Wu and colleagues from Harvard is especially striking. And you'll note that this is from a preprint, so this article hasn't been officially published yet. So they evaluated data from over 3,000 counties in the U.S., which uh, represents about 98% of the U.S. population. The top map here shows the distribution of PM2.5 air pollution, which is the type of air pollution that poses the greatest risk to human health. And the red and yellow areas are those that are more polluted, and the blue areas are less polluted. The bottom map shows the distribution of county-level death rates from COVID-19. And you can see there that the red and yellow areas are less polluted, and the blue areas are more polluted. And these maps really show that the spatial patterns are quite similar between the distribution of air pollution and the distribution of COVID-related mortality. So after they adjusted for socioeconomic factors, weather, epidemic stage, social isolation measures, and other behavioral factors, they found that each very small increase in PM2.5 pollution was associated with an 8% higher COVID death rate at the county level. So several studies from Italy have also found similar things. For example, Contacini et al. pointed to a very strong correlation between the provinces in Italy that had the highest COVID-19 mortality and air pollution levels, including um, ozone levels um, and smog rates, as measured by the Air Quality Index, which captures five key pollutants. Building on this hypothesis, Fatterini and Rigoli demonstrated a correlation between long-term poor air quality and COVID-19 cases. And the maps shown here are from their analysis. On the left, you can see province-level cases of COVID-19 through April 27th, with the darker brown colors meaning more cases. 
The green map in the middle shows mean, mean air pollution in the last four years. And again, the darker colors are, um, high, are um, represent more pollution. And finally, the blue map all the way on the right shows provinces where air pollution exceeded regulatory limits over the past three years. So darker blue here means more time exceeding those limits. And I think what you can see is a clear spatial relationship between COVID-19 prevalence and air pollution. And the two graphs at the bottom show this empirically with the upward slopes really demonstrating a positive correlation between air pollution and COVID-19 cases at the provincial level. So climate change itself can also contribute to immune suppression, which could lead to increased disease incidence. Swaminathan and colleagues actually postulated several different mechanisms for how climate change exposures could impact the human immune system. So first you have extrinsic factors, including climactic factors like UV radiation, heat stress, and extreme weather events. And you have other factors like food insecurity, um, poor sanitation, overcrowding, and poverty. You also have intrinsic factors like undernutrition, infectious diseases, psychological stress, and dehydration. And notably, these intrinsic and extrinsic factors can affect one another. For instance, if you're food insecure, you may have higher rates of undernutrition, and you have a higher susceptibility of other infections. And then in turn, if you're, if you're ill from some infectious disease, you may be more food insecure if you're unable to procure employment as a result of the illness. So these ex extrinsic and intrinsic factors together can contribute to um, immune dysfunction, so both innate and adaptive immunity, leading to more infectious disease, autoimmune disease, and cancer, among other conditions. So another notable thing that you've probably heard of quite a bit in the news is these significant racial disparities among COVID-19 cases, for COVID-19 cases, as well as morbidity and mortality. And this has been particularly the case for the African-American community. So an analysis of 131 predominantly black versus white counties found that the infection rate was over threefold higher in black compared to white counties, and the death rate was sixfold higher. And we've also seen disparities in Hispanic, Native American, and other minority populations. For instance, in the Bay Area, uh, the disparity for Hispanic populations has been quite stark. And just as some examples of um, these um, disparities in the African-American population, you can see in Kansas, while African-Americans comprise only 5% of the total population, that they comprise 33% of the deaths. In Louisiana, African-Americans are 32% of the total population, but 70% of the deaths. And in Wisconsin, you see that African-Americans are 6% of the population, but 39% of the deaths. And there are really many factors that could contribute to the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 among racial minorities. So these include a higher prevalence of comorbidities, um, higher rates of poverty, less ability to work remotely, and less access to high-quality health care. Importantly, and I think relevant for this talk, minority populations also experience disproportionately more environmental injustice, including bearing the brunt of climate change exposures. And this has been referred to as the climate gap. So some examples include that they're more susceptible to experiencing extreme weather events, as we saw with Hurricane Katrina, 
Um, they have more morbidity and mortality from heat waves. For example, in LA, African-Americans have twice the mortality rate from heat waves compared to other residents, and they also experience a higher burden of air pollution. So in terms of air pollution, um, in a study from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2019, really highlighted this unequal exposure to air pollutants. So non-Hispanic whites are exposed to 17% less air pollution than caused by their consumption. And this contrasts with African-Americans that have 56% excess exposure to air pollution relative to their consumption, and Hispanics who have 63% excess exposure. So what this really means is that air pollution is being disproportionately caused by white consumption of goods and services, but is being disproportionately inhaled by black and Hispanic minorities. So I think another key point is that climate change creates living conditions that are not conducive to protecting oneself from infection. For example, we know that drought can lead to water insecurity, which makes hand washing and adhering to sanitation recommendations very challenging. And drought also contributes to migration. Migration from floods, um, hurricanes, rising sea levels and other and extreme weather events um, really can lead to overcrowding that then could encourage rapid spread of infection. And overcrowding also makes social distancing uh, very difficult, if not impossible, to adhere to. And I think a final point here is that climate change can cause health problems that send people to doctor's offices, emergency rooms, or hospitals that are already strained by us COVID-19 right now. So some examples of this include injuries from extreme weather events, heat stress from de causing dehydration, and lung disease or asthma attacks from air pollution exposure. And then once they're at the emergency room, they may be then at higher risk for COVID exposure. So what has been the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on climate change? Well, in the short term, the picture has looked pretty optimistic. We've seen drastic reductions in carbon dioxide emissions across the globe and marked, uh, a marked decrease in energy consumption. And this has been due to the economic shutdowns, lots of teleworking and shelter at home orders. But the picture in the long term, I think, seems much less optimistic. Um, we may see rebounds in CO2 emissions when economies come back online. And also, um, there's, um, we're already seeing delays in climate actions, including policy regulations, local advocacy efforts, and investment in green solutions. So according to the climate group Carbon Brief, it's actually estimated that CO2 emissions could fall by 5.5%. So from 2019 levels, which is the largest ever, ever annual decrease. And just as a point of comparison, emissions fell by only 1.4% following the 2008 financial crisis. So here are maps based on satellite images from NASA, where you can see that the levels of nitrogen dioxide has fall, have fallen quite dramatically this year, likely related to the economic shutdown from the COVID pandemic. For example, nitrogen dioxide levels across eastern and central China have fallen by about 10 to 30 percent compared to normal levels. And you see very similar things in Italy. So here are maps of northern Italy showing a 40 percent reduction in nitrogen dioxide levels 
between March 2019 and March 2020. So I'm sure many of you have seen these dramatic photos of cities such as New Delhi and Los Angeles, where we really see clean, cleaner air and clear skies for the first time in a very long time during the pandemic. So people have been driving considerably less during the pandemic lockdowns. For instance, the amount of gas that's been supplied to the U.S., which is a proxy measure for consumption, has actually fell by 50% in the last two weeks of March. These photos show dramatic changes in the traffic in the Highway 110 in Los Angeles, both before and during the pandemic. And electricity use has also dropped quite a bit uh, throughout the country, though maybe less dramatically than with fuel supplies. The longer-term impacts of the pandemic are less clear, but many speculate that the present gains in emissions will only reverse and even get worse once economies open back up. And we do have some examples of this from our past. So you can see that there were temporary emission reductions during other crises, such as the 1970s oil shocks and the 2008 financial crisis. But emissions then not only rebounded from these, but then pushed even higher. For example, looking at the 2008 financial crisis, you can see a 1.4% decrease in CO2 emissions in 2009. But then you can see in the following years, you see uh, that that um, increase was dwarfed by significant, uh, that decrease was dwarfed by significant increases. So there's also been a lot of talk uh, about the impact of the pandemic on climate action. And we're seeing many climate meetings being postponed because of travel restrictions, social distancing, and diversion of attention to the coronavirus pandemic. For example, the UN postponed its annual climate summit from November 2020 to an as of yet undetermined date in 2021. And this summit was really expected to be the most important climate negotiations since 2015, since countries are expected to update their emission targets, which is required by the Paris Agreement every five years. The UN also postponed its Biodiversity Summit, which is the most important biodiversity meeting in a decade. And similarly, you can see that the second UN uh, Oceans Conference was also postponed. I think importantly, climate research and fieldwork has also been slowed and halted, and this includes critical research going on at NASA and in the Arctic region. So climate protests and activism are also less visible due to social distancing requirements. So for instance, the 50th Earth Day anniversary activities were celebrated virtually, and climate protests associated with that event were pushed online and really out of the public eye. Political will to address climate issues also seems to be weakened while the pandemic is really dominating everybody's attention. For instance, US stimulus spending has not included thus far the renewable sector. There's also been calls to set aside the European Green Deal, which commits the European Union to zero emissions by 2050, uh, in order to really focus now on the pandemic response. Environmental standards are being relaxed, uh, really to ease pressures on many industries that have been negatively impacted by the pandemic. So the Trump administration has unfortunately been rolling back fuel economy standards, and we know that the EPA is no longer penalizing companies that fail to comply with federal monitoring requirements. And this could have, of course, very negative impacts on air pollution and climate change. 
As another example, Poland called for their carbon trading program to be put on hold, and China is also delaying their emissions cutting policies. So given the many parallels between the COVID pandemic and climate change, there are several lessons that I think we can apply to future climate action. And first, I just want to emphasize again that the health of our planet and our own health are inextricably linked. Human survival and flourishing are dependent on a healthy and flourishing planet. So perhaps this crisis can also teach us a sense of humility by reinforcing that the world and nature aren't simply there for us to use. We are interconnected with nature and what happens with the environment affects us. While we may have been feeling paralyzed and daunted by the scale of the societal change required for climate action, we've also seen that both people and governments can mobilize very quickly and extensively when needed. And in fact, the scale of the change required for the COVID-19 pandemic uh, is uh, quite a bit uh, more extreme than what is required for climate action. Similarly, people have been able to make dramatic changes in their behavior during the pandemic. So from changing hand-washing practices and face-touching practices to enacting very strict social distancing measures and isolating at home to wearing masks in public. And all of this um, really in a matter of weeks. In other words, it shows that we really do have the capacity to make drastic changes if we need to. I think another key lesson here is similar to the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate crisis really does require a coordinated government response, both within borders and across borders. And we have seen in the context of COVID that such a response can literally be a matter of life or death. I think one of the biggest lessons of the pandemic and an important argument for climate action is that it is very costly to address a crisis once it arises, rather than to invest in prevention. Finally, I think the pandemic is really bringing to light the many ways that our governments and our societies and our economies do not work for us, especially among the most vulnerable. And this experience can really present us with a unique opportunity to fundamentally change how we live and work to create a more equitable and sustainable planet. So where do we go from here? What will post-pandemic life look like? I think in a best case scenario, we would capitalize on the moment. The pandemic has really reinforced the importance of preventative measures and reminded people that big change and big actions are possible. We really do need to move towards a green energy paradigm shift, and this could be the moment to try to do that. The low-hanging fruit could be to continue workplace changes, such as teleworking for certain businesses when appropriate, and the reduced emissions just from less commuting alone could be quite substantial. Given that we're in a moment where governments have committed to spending big, we can really try to direct some stimulus funding towards the renewable energy sector. The COVID-19 pandemic has also highlighted uh, rather poignantly that we absolutely can no longer ignore addressing risk factors for vulnerable populations. And these include food, housing, and employment insecurity, and lack of access to quality health care. One would also hope that the pandemic experience would reinforce a sense of shared humanity, and that could then reinforce the importance of addressing the climate crisis. So the pandemic has been forcing many institutions to, think, to rethink some of their operations and policies and to plan for what work will look like post-pandemic. 
And in this unique moment, we should really think of a regenerative recovery, moving us closer to sustainability. For example, at UCSF, we've been thinking, how do we continue some of the climate positive changes that you know, were forced upon us during the COVID pandemic? And, and some of those could be quite positive, like reduced faculty travel, less commuting by car, remote meetings, and when appropriate at least, uh, remote consultations with patients. And at UCSF, we're trying to develop a set of guidelines on how departments and other units within UCSF can institutionalize those changes, so stay tuned. I think in conclusion, we've seen that planetary health and human well-being are inextricably linked. We've seen that climate change can act as a threat amplifier for the COVID-19 pandemic and unfortunately for future uh, similar pandemics. We also have seen that environmental conditions are very responsive to changes in human behavior, both in the, for the positive and the negative. And the pandemic does represent a unique opportunity for regenerative recovery. And I'll end there. Um, so thank you very much. And I just wanted to acknowledge Adrian Epstein and Jennifer Zakaris for their uh, contributions to this slide set. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.